again, and welcome to the February 2011 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, along with Sarah Forge, our editorial assistant. In this issue, we continue with the papers from the 46th Respiratory Care Journal Conference on the theme of patient-ventilator interaction. Control of Breathing During Mechanical Ventilation who is the boss? Is by Williams, Hinojosa Kurtzberg, and Partha Sarathi. Over the past decade, concepts of control of breathing have increasingly moved from being theoretical concepts to real-world applied science. The purpose of this review is to examine the basics of control of breathing, discuss the bi-directional relationship between control of breathing and mechanical ventilation, and critically assess the application of this knowledge at the patient's bedside. The principles of control of breathing remain underrepresented in the training curriculum of respiratory therapists and pulmonologists, whereas the day-to-day bedside application of the principles of control of breathing continue to suffer from a lack of outcomes-based research in the intensive care unit. In contrast, the bedside application of the principles of control of breathing to ambulatory subjects with sleep-disordered breathing has outstripped that of critically ill patients. The evolution of newer technologies, faster real-time computing abilities, and miniaturization of ventilator technology can bring the concepts of control of breathing to the bedside and benefit the critically ill patient. However, market forces, lack of scientific data, lack of research funding, and regulatory obstacles need to be surmounted. As addressed by Williams and colleagues, the physiologic concepts of control of breathing have increasingly moved from theoretical construct to real-world applied science. I agree that the day-to-day bedside applications of the principles of control of breathing suffer from a lack of outcomes-based research in the intensive care unit. This is unfortunate because patient-ventilator asynchrony is often the result of a mismatch between the patient's neural respiratory drive and the response of the ventilator. The evolution of newer technologies does hold the possibility of benefit for the critically ill patient to allow better patient-ventilator synchrony. Next, we have the paper by Kasmerik. Proportional Assist Ventilation and Neurally Adjusted Ventilatory Assist Patient ventilator synchrony is a common problem with all patients actively triggering the ventilator. In many cases, synchrony can be improved by vigilant adjustments by the managing clinician. However, in most institutions, clinicians are not able to spend the time necessary to ensure synchrony in all patients. Proportional assist ventilation and neurally adjusted ventilatory assist were both developed to improve patient ventilator synchrony by proportionally unloading ventilatory effort and turning control of the ventilatory pattern over to the patient. This paper discusses theory of operation, general process of application, and the supporting literature for these ventilator modes. Proportional assist ventilation and neurally adjusted ventilatory assist were both developed to improve patient ventilator synchrony by proportionally unloading ventilatory effort. These relatively new modes are nicely described by Kazmarek. However, whether or not these modes improve patient outcomes is yet to be determined. Moreover, 
their widespread use is limited by the fact that, in the United States, each is available on only one model of ventilator. Also to be determined is the cost-effectiveness of these modes. Patient-ventilator interaction during non-invasive ventilation is by Hess. There is arguably more evidence to support the use of non-invasive ventilation NIV, than any other practice relating to the care of patients with acute respiratory failure. Despite this strong evidence base, NIV seems to be underutilized and the failure rate may be as high as 40%. Some of these failures potentially relate to asynchrony, although the relationship between asynchrony and NIV failure has not been well studied. Good non-invasive ventilation tolerance has been associated with success of NIV and improved comfort has been associated with better synchrony. In one study, a high rate of asynchrony occurred in 43% of patients during NIV. Asynchrony is commonly associated with leaks. Thus, reducing the leak related to the interface and using a ventilator with good leak compensation should reduce the rate of asynchrony. Asynchronies can also be related to the underlying disease process. This paper reviews issues related to asynchrony during NIV and suggests strategies that might be used to correct asynchrony when it occurs. Despite the strong evidence base supporting its use, the failure rate of non-invasive ventilation remains high. As I discuss in this paper, some of these failures may relate to asynchrony. However, the relationship between asynchrony and NIV failure has not been well studied, but good NIV tolerance has been associated with success of NIV, and improved comfort has been associated with better synchrony. Asynchrony is commonly associated with leaks, thus reducing the leak related to the interface and using a ventilator with good leak compensation should reduce the rate of asynchrony. When should sedation or neuromuscular blockade be used is by Bennett and Herford. Sedation has become an important part of critical care practice in minimizing patient discomfort and agitation during mechanical ventilation. Pain, anxiety, and delirium form a triad of factors that can lead to agitation. Achieving and maintaining an optimal level of comfort and safety in the intensive care unit plays an essential part in caring for critically ill patients. Sedatives, opioids, and the goal of therapy should be and unit-based guidelines facilitate the proper use of sedation and neuromuscular blocking agents. The goal of sedation is a calm, comfortable patient who can easily be aroused and who can tolerate mechanical ventilation and procedures required for their care. So then, when should sedation and neuromuscular blockade be used? Certainly, achieving an optimal level of comfort and safety in the intensive care unit is essential in caring for critically ill patients. But as clinicians, we will likely continue to struggle to find an appropriate balance between comfort and arousal in the care of mechanically ventilated patients. I cannot agree more with the authors that the goal of therapy should be directed toward a specific indication, not simply to provide restraint. Patient 
patient-ventilator interaction during acute lung injury and the role of spontaneous breathing, part one, respiratory muscle function during critical illness, is by Calais. Since the early 1970s, there has been an ongoing debate regarding the wisdom of promoting unassisted spontaneous breathing throughout the course of critical illness in patients with severe respiratory failure. The basis of this debate has focused on the clinical relevance of opposite problems. Historically, the term disuse atrophy has described a situation wherein sustained inactivity of the respiratory muscles results in deconditioning and weakness. More recently, it has been referred to as ventilator-induced diaphragmatic dysfunction. In contrast, use atrophy describes a situation where chronic high-tension inspiratory work causes structural damage to the diaphragm and weakness. Both laboratory and clinical studies demonstrated that relatively brief periods of complete respiratory muscle inactivity as well as intense muscle loading result in acute inflammation, loss of muscle mass, and weakness. Yet, in critical illness, other factors also affect respiratory muscle function, including prolonged use of neuromuscular blocking agents, administration of corticosteroids, and sepsis. This makes the attribution of acquired respiratory muscle weakness and ventilator dependence to either ventilator-induced diaphragmatic dysfunction or loaded breathing extremely difficult. Regardless, the clinical implications of this research strongly suggest that passive mechanical ventilation should be avoided wherever possible. However, promotion of unassisted spontaneous breathing in the acute phase of critical illness also may carry a substantial risk of respiratory muscle injury and weakness. Use of mechanical ventilation modes in a manner that induces spontaneous breathing effort while simultaneously reducing the workload on the respiratory muscles is probably sufficient to minimize both problems. Calais presents a very nice review of respiratory muscle function during critical illness. Relatively brief periods of complete respiratory muscle inactivity on one extreme and intense muscle loading on the other extreme can result in loss of muscle mass and weakness. This has led to intense debate among those who care for mechanically ventilated patients about the appropriate level of respiratory muscle loading and unloading during mechanical ventilation. This is complicated by the fact that, in critical illness, other factors also affect respiratory muscle function, including prolonged use of neuromuscular blocking agents, administration of corticosteroids, and sepsis. Nonetheless, it would seem prudent to use mechanical ventilation modes in a manner that promotes some spontaneous breathing effort while simultaneously reducing the workload on the respiratory muscles. Next, we have another paper by Calais entitled Patient-Ventilator Interaction During Acute Lung Injury and the Role of Spontaneous Breathing, Part 2, Airway Pressure Release Ventilation. Airway Pressure Release Ventilation, or APRV, is proposed to reduce patient work of breathing sufficiently and obviate issues related to patient ventilator synchrony so that spontaneous breathing can be maintained throughout the course of acute lung injury. Thus, APRV should reduce requirements for sedation and muscle paralysis and thereby reduce the duration of mechanical ventilation. 
Only 17 human, animal, or lung model studies have examined these claims, either directly or indirectly. Most did not target patients with acute lung injury. Studies on sedation use have serious methodological limitations. Other studies found that APRV either increased work of breathing and asynchrony or had no effect on energy expenditure. To supplement the discussion of patient work of breathing during APRV in acute lung injury, four clinical examples showed marked elevation and wide variation in patient work of breathing. One plausible explanation is that spontaneous breathing is superimposed upon the mechanical ventilation pattern. Thus, a variety of breathing environments exist during APRV that affect patient work of breathing and respiratory drive differently and perhaps unpredictably. This characteristic of APRV makes work of breathing comparisons with traditional modes problematic. Furthermore, the theoretical benefits of APRV in terms of controlling patient work of breathing evidence suggests that promoting spontaneous breathing with APRV may not be appropriate in patients with relatively severe acute lung injury. APRV is a mode of mechanical ventilation that promotes spontaneous breathing. It is intended to reduce the requirements for sedation and paralysis, improve patient ventilator interaction, and improve arterial oxygenation. However, these theoretical advantages of APRV are not well supported by high-level evidence. As stated by Calais, to date, low-level evidence suggests that promoting spontaneous breathing with APRV may not be appropriate in patients with relatively severe acute lung injury. Patient ventilator interaction in the long-term acute care hospital is by Gamlish, O'Connor, and White. Optimizing patient ventilator synchrony is essential in managing patients who require prolonged mechanical ventilation in the long-term acute care hospital. Inadequate synchrony can increase work of breathing, cause patient discomfort, and delay both weaning and general rehabilitation. Achieving optimal synchrony in the long-term acute care hospital depends on a number of factors, including adjusting ventilator settings in response to improving lung function, adjusting psychotropic medications to control delirium, anxiety, and depression, and ensuring there is a well-positioned, correctly-sized tracheostomy tube in the airway. The purpose of this review is to provide an update on issues pertinent to patient ventilator synchrony in the long-term acute care setting. As discussed by Gamlash et al., achieving optimal patient ventilator synchrony in the long-term acute care hospital depends on a number of factors, including adjusting ventilator settings in response to improving lung function, adjusting psychotropic medications to control delirium, anxiety, and depression, and ensuring that there is a well-positioned, correctly-sized tracheostomy tube in the airway. Thus, addressing patient ventilator synchrony in this setting requires a thorough assessment of both the ventilator and the ventilator settings. The conference summary is by Pearson. Patient ventilator interaction has been the focus of increasing attention from both manufacturers and researchers during the last 25 years. 
There is now compelling evidence that passive, controlled, mechanical ventilation leads to respiratory muscle dysfunction and atrophy, prolonging the need for ventilatory support and predisposing to a number of adverse patient outcomes. Although there is consensus that the respiratory muscle should retain some activity during acute respiratory failure, patient ventilator asynchrony is now recognized as a cause of ineffective ventilation, impaired gas exchange, lung over-distension, increased work of breathing, and patient discomfort. Far more common than previously recognized, it also predisposes to respiratory muscle dysfunction and other complications, leads to excessive use of sedation, increases the duration of ventilatory support, and interferes with weaning. Appropriate recognition and management of patient ventilator asynchrony require bedside assessment of ventilator graphics as well as direct patient observation. Among currently available ventilation modes and approaches, none has been shown to clearly be superior to all the others with respect to patient-ventilator interaction, and strongly held preferences among investigators have led to controversy and difficulties in carrying out appropriate studies evaluating them. As a result, marked practice variation exists among different specialities as well as in different institutions and geographical areas. The respected authorities on mechanical ventilation who participated in this conference differed in the modes they preferred, but agreed that proper understanding and use according to the individual patient's needs are more important than which mode is chosen. Conference participants discussed the determinants, manifestations, and epidemiology of patient ventilator asynchrony and described and compared several ventilation modes aimed specifically at preventing and ameliorating it. The articles arising from these discussions represent the most thorough examination of this important aspect of respiratory care yet published. As discussed by Pearson in the conference summary, appropriate recognition and management of patient ventilator asynchrony requires bedside assessment of ventilator graphics as well as direct patient observation. Among currently available ventilation modes and approaches, none has been shown to be clearly superior to all the others with respect to patient ventilator interaction. Although the faculty who participated in this conference differed in the modes that they preferred, they agreed that proper understanding and use are more important than which mode is chosen. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.